Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest podcast. This is on vascular disease in young adults, and I'm focusing on genetic diseases. And this was a talk I gave at RSNA, and I'll expand it a little bit, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. And one of the things to recognize is we do more and more imaging, particularly CT for vascular imaging, and there's a lot more being understood about vascular disease. And we're not talking simply about atherosclerotic disease in a 70 or 80-year-old, but we're talking about diseases that tend to affect younger patients from under 10 to teenage years to 20s and the like. There's been a lot written about this whole process, and here's just an article in circulation a couple years back making the point about how much is being learned from studying DNA and RNA, looking at aortic tissues, the analysis of pedigrees and linkage and mutations, and how much is being understood today that wasn't understood a few years ago, and how much will be understood over the next couple of years. So let's talk about that. And what I'll focus on is three of the main genetic vascular diseases. And these are three we really see a lot at Hopkins, uh, in part Marfan's, uh, original surgeries, uh, Vince Scott, for example, uh, Ehlers Danlos, uh, you know, the, We'd have a lot of Dr. Black at Hopkins, a lot of surgery on these patients, Lois Dietz. Both Lois and Dietz were from Hopkins and are still at Hopkins. So we'll look at some of the things. What's the genetic defect in each syndrome? What are the classic as well as unique vascular imaging findings in each of the syndromes? What are the helpful extravascular findings that may be present that can help you reach the correct diagnosis? And what are the unique clinical issues in each syndrome and how are they managed? Now, a couple other things to look at. Critical things in analyzing any of these patients would be the protocols from the imaging protocols to the scan protocols to data analysis. And when we talk about data analysis, when we talk about final analysis and consultation, so much revolves around 3D imaging. And it's the images we send to the referring physicians, the images they look at, and the images they often share with the patient. Now, in terms of looking at and analyzing this information, several things are important and something we've often spoken about, but there was a good article published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery making the point that how you do measurements in complicated cases is critical. Simply using the axial CTs to give a maximum measurement of the aorta, particularly thoracic aorta, is going to be incorrect. And it's particularly true when the aorta is ectatic because then the measurements can be wrong. Surely they will not be good intra or inter-observer variability. There'll be just too much variability. And so what you need to be able to do is what's called double oblique, or really is better defined as a center line. Using some of the new technology, and I'll show you some examples, we measure the center line of a vessel. It's easily reproducible from point A to point B, or from time A to time B, as well as between different observers, as well as it's more accurate. It goes one-to-one -one with what you're going to see at surgery. Now, in terms of protocols, depending on patient size, uh, the contrast volumes will vary, also depending if we're scanning the carotids and thoracic aorta and abdominal aorta and runoff versus a limited area. We'll typically use Omnipake. Borderline function, we'll use Visipake. Younger patients under 18, we'll use Visipake routinely. Injection rate, we tend to be around 5 cc's per second, but will indeed vary it. Ideally, right antecubital fossa with an 18-gauge catheter is where you want to be injecting. And particularly when you're doing runoffs, saline chasers can be very helpful to extend essentially the time of injection, or in other cases, to decrease the contrast volume needed. 
In terms of protocols, here's a typical 64 slice protocol on a Siemens scanner, but it works similar on most scanners. Key thing, thin sections, 0.75 under a millimeter at 0.6 millimeter intervals. So that overlaps very nicely. Um, and again, with a uh, typical thoracic, you might have a pitch of one or less. When you do things with a dual source, which is particularly ideal for looking at long vascular areas at a low dose, you can use the same collimation and slice thickness, but you have a very high pitch, and so it's a much lower dose, and you can scan the patient much more quickly. Now, in terms of gating, we've spoken about this in other lectures. If you're doing thoracic aorta, particularly when you want to look at the ascending aorta and surely looking at the valves and coronaries, you need to do a gated acquisition. It's optimal for anything that you might consider type A, and many of the syndromes like Marfan's, that's what you're thinking about. You get a free look at the coronary arteries, you get a great look at the aortic valve, particularly if you do a little wider set of images. And it's ideal for things like Marfan's and Lowy's Deeds, without a doubt. So let's get started. Let's look specifically at some of the entities. Marfan's is something we all have learned in our residency. It's a connective tissue disease, but so much more has been learned of it recently. It's caused by mutations in the fibrillin 1 gene on chromosome 15. It's autosomal dominant, but up to 30% of cases are sporadic. And it has a wide range of manifestations from cardiovascular, which is what we'll speak about, to ocular, to musculoskeletal, to CNS, to pulmonary manifestations. And some of those manifestations would be uh, ectopia lentis, retinal detachment, scoliosis, pectus deformities, a very classic, acetabular protrusio, duralectasia was almost the first article I wrote at Hopkins, speaking about this in Marfan's. And of course, they also get pulmonary findings, less common, including spontaneous pneumothorax and bulli. When you look carefully at the cardiovascular, which is what we're focusing on, we talk about uh, aortic vascular insufficiency, we talk about aortic aneurysms as well as the sections, we talk about pulmonary artery dilatation as well as mitral valve prolapse. Now, how you diagnose Marfan's has been a subject of much controversy. There's been lots of concern that patients have been overdiagnosed. The classic diagnosis is based on the Ghent criteria, which include cardiovascular, ocular, and pulmonary abnormalities. We talk about two major or one minor criteria, or one major and four minor criteria for making the diagnosis. Average death in untreated patients is 35 years, while untreated patients is up to age 75. So you can see how important it is to make the right diagnosis. The problem is the wrong diagnosis creates all sorts of health issues for that patient in terms of insurance and the like. So we need to be very careful. We talk about major criteria. We talk about dilatation of the ascending aorta involving at least the sinuses of Valsalva with or without aortic regurgitation or dissection of the ascending aorta. The minor criteria, dilatation or dissection of the descending or abdominal aorta before age 50, dilatation of the main pulmonary artery before age 40, mitral valve prolapse, and calcification of the mitral valve before age 40. Now, most recently, there was a revised Ghent criteria, which puts more weight on the cardiovascular manifestations 
and in which aortic root aneurysms and ectopia lentis are the cardinal clinical features. In the absence of any family history, the presence of these two manifestations is sufficient for the unequivocal diagnosis of Marfan syndrome. In the absence of these two, the presence of a bona fide FBN1 mutation or a combination of systemic manifestations is required. So it tends to tighten up the criteria. Just some more information about the cardiovascular manifestations, aortic dissection, congestive heart failure, and cardiac valvular disease are the most common causes of death in 90% of those affected. It's the primary cause of reduction in life expectancy. But again, so much has been learned over the past 30 years. The improvements in diagnostic techniques, the improvements in therapy, both medical and surgical, have led to considerable increases in the patient's life uh, expectancies. There's a number of different surgical procedures. The Bentle procedure is probably the best known. Now, in terms of surgery, ascending aorta 4.5 centimeters or growing greater than 0.5 centimeters a year is indication for surgery. And when you do surgery, it's repair of the root, aortic valve, and ascending aorta. It's a composite type graft. You just don't fix one area. You need to fix everything at one time. Now, sinus of Valsalva aneurysms are indeed rare. They can be congenital or acquired. They're more common in men and can have acquired courses from, causes from endocarditis to syphilis to TB. But congenital, we think of Marfan's and Ehlers-Danlos. So when you see a dilated sinus of Valsalva, you've got to be thinking Marfan's because Marfan's is more common than Ehlers-Danlos. But we'll get to Ehlers-Danlos in a little bit. So example, look at this case, young patient, look at the size of the ascending aorta. And when you take it from those planes, which very nicely also show you the aortic valve leaflets, which are three-leaf valve, look at the saccular appearance of the aortic root. To me, you've got to be thinking Marfan's. That's not atherosclerotic disease as a younger patient. That's just a beautiful example of dilated sinuses of Valsalva. It's kind of like a sac. And here it is in two more projections in 3D, MIP, volume rendering, and here it is in a couple more projections. So you really do see the extent of involvement, and it's indeed very impressive as I rotate through. So sinus of Valsalva is so critical. And here's another example. Look at the size of the dilated ascending aorta. Indeed, very, very impressive. That's not atherosclerotic disease. Again, a younger patient, there's no calcifications present. Descending aorta looks fine. Here it is on the sagittal view and 3D views. You gotta be thinking in that Marfans. Another example, not as dramatic, but there again, sinus of Alsalva, dilated, saccular. Here's a few more views in 3D. Very, very impressive. Again, think Marfans. And here's that same patient doing the measurements. You can see how the importance of a center line to get the right measurements is going to be. You can think about all the different ways you can measure that uh, aortic root, and you can get a range of different measurements. So we want the maximum along the center line. Okay? And here's just a good example of showing that. It'd be hard to figure out where you measure here. Are you measuring correctly? The aorta is ectatic. But here you can see we've now used the computer. We draw a point A at the bottom of the arch at the sinus of Alsalva. Take a second point in the ascending or descending aorta. The computer generates a straight line along that point as if blood was flowing down the center. And now we lay out the vessel and we track through the vessel and we pick the largest diameter. It indeed works very nicely. 
And here's another example showing you very much the same thing. So indeed, it becomes very, very important that you look at this really carefully because otherwise you can make terrible mistakes in making measurements, particularly a case like this where all the dilatation is very low. I've seen this red as normal, where people measure higher, where it looks fine. Now you can see also when you're measuring at this level, the challenge of a non-gated study it's very, very hard to get accurate measurements. So it's really very important that you do have this gated acquisition uh, when you're looking at the aortic root. I think otherwise you can overestimate or underestimate the presence of disease or at least not of great certainty. And again, when you do those measurements, it's easy to kind of get a look at the valve. Now, here again, you can see you really want to get the exact precise place for doing the measurement, which was shown here. Another case, Marfans with dilated sinus valsalva. And you can see the dilated sinus valsalva, no problem. It also should be careful to look at, or one should be careful to look at the entire aorta. This patient also has a left common iliac artery aneurysm, so extending into external iliac. So you don't only see one zone of dilatation, you may also see multiple zones. You may see dissections. You can see dissections type A. You also can see type B dissections. And here's a type B dissection, which we follow downward. And you can recognize as Marfans by look at that duralactasia, widening of the canal in the sacrum, these cystic outpouchings, uh, very classic, uh, these dilated, uh, the meninges with, we've seen this present as ovarian masses or cystic pelvic masses. You can see the sagittal view. You can understand why that happens. So indeed, very, very important diagnosis, a very important entity. Again, think of the multiple findings pectus, excavatum, pectus carinatum, duralectasia. You see those findings, you've got to be thinking about the presence of Marfans in a younger patient with an ascending aortic aneurysm. Again, it's not 100% specific. You can see some skeletal manifestations that are similar in Lois Dietz, but we'll get to that. And in fact, let's get to Lois Dietz. Lois Dietz is another I recently identified genetic syndrome with phenotype resemblance to Marfan's morphinoid craniosynostosis syndrome, and in some cases, Ehlers-Danlos type 4. So it's a very, very important syndrome, has a number of different manifestations, but has certain unique manifestations. We published an article that Pam Johnson did a couple years ago looking at this has a very specific uh, genotype or phenotype. You can see that the genes encoding type 1 or type 2 transforming growth factor beta, TGF beta receptor, are abnormal. Now, I can show you this chart, and I could try to explain to you which genes are abnormal, but it's just an impressive chart. So just remember that it's genetic disease, and the way you specifically make the diagnosis definitively is with the genetic aspects of the disease. Couple other comments. Lois Dietz is characterized by a unique constellation of clinical and pathologic findings. Uh, it's an aggressive vascular pathology. Aneurysms can form at a very young age and have a propensity for dissection. In addition, aneurysms rupture a diameter smaller than those used to dictate surgical intervention for other syndromes and disorders. So not only do the aneurysms and dissections happen earlier, but they're much more aggressive. And so for patients with Lowy's Dietz, early diagnosis and rapid intervention are critical in perverting catastrophic outcomes. And so careful follow-up of these patients is indeed very important. Now, there are a number of different traits 
widely spaced eyes, a bifid uvula, cleft palate, are the ones that are outside the vascular system. The ones in the vascular system we think about are arterial tortuosity, which is really a hallmark finding and very unique, and ascending aortic aneurysm with or without dissection. So you can see the ascending aneurysm is something you think about Marfan's. The arterial tortuosity is somewhat unique. And you can see here are some of the less common traits. And again, from a vascular perspective, congenital heart disease, an aneurysm with dissection anywhere throughout the arterial system. When you talk about Lowy's DEETS, you talk about two clinical subtypes. One, you can see here, type one, cranial facial and vascular pathology, cranial facial index determines the severity of the syndrome. Uh, these patients need earlier surgical intervention versus Lowy's DEETS type two which uh, very much resembles Ehlers-Danlos, and it's only recently been separated. Uh, the surgery in this group of patients is particularly difficult, just like Ehlers-Danlos, because of fragility of the arterial tissues. Uh, really, surgery is extremely dangerous in this group of patients. However, they do well after surgical repair if they survive the surgery. And again, here's just a clinical perspective from the uh, triad of hypotelorism, cleft palate, or bifid uvula, arterial tortuosity, aneurysm, and dissection. So those, those three things. So let's take a look at the CT findings. Let's focus on that. But why don't we do this? I think the clock's running a little bit late. Why don't we take a break at this point, and then we'll come back and we'll pick it up, and we'll do part two of this lecture. Okay? See you in a couple minutes. <music> 